Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney, and this is my youngest daughter, Delaney. She's in town this week from Southern California visiting me, and she's terrified I'm going to ask her a hard question. So what's the last book of the Old Testament uh, in Hebrew right now? Say it! Um, Say it! See? My own family doesn't know the last book of the Old Testament in Hebrew. Now, she's a great kid and a lover, and I just want to get her on the archives so you can see my youngest who doesn't often come on. Thanks, David. All right. If, if you have family or friends who can't watch Heart of the Matter on television, they can go to www.hotm and watch it live from anywhere in the world. Streaming video. We welcome our uh, streaming audience as they view live from all over the place. So we're grateful that you join us. Our archive viewers, hey, I was a born-again Mormon is available for PDF download. Uh, no cost. Go to uh, bornagainmormon.com. Uh, check uh, the box that says get the PDF and click it and it will start printing for you. Have it right there in your hands or just read it off your computer. How's your Bible knowledge? Join us every week either in Logan at Utah State or at University of Utah here in Salt Lake City where we go verse by verse in the Word, a never denominational Bible study. If you are seeking just to understand the Word of God, Come join us. You can be LDS. You can be Eastern uh, uh, metaphysics. You can be whatever you want. A non-believer. We welcome you. You can go to www.calvarycampus.com. Uh, we, you know, when we first started the show, we used to do these shout-outs, and it got to the point where I was spending like the first 10 minutes shouting out. We don't do them anymore, but we do have a special shout-out I have to do for our good partner and friend, Ann Claypool. She is in her 80s. She has been supporting us from the beginning. She had open heart surgery. She's up north in Utah, and we just love her to death. So we wanted to tell you that. Uh, shout out to Ann. Uh, it seems like from the Salt Lake Trib uh, article has come out, and it says uh, the return of Mormon. Uh, after a decade-long moratorium, Mormon, the name, is back where LDS leaders were once pushing members to call themselves Latter-day Saints rather than Mormons. Now the church-owned Deseret News has created Mormon Times. Mormon Messages is now on YouTube, uh, sponsored by the LDS Church. And Mormon Channel is on the radio. So they also have a missionary website called mormon.org. What has caused the change uh, besides revelation from God? Uh, the Internet. Uh, I guess there have been a millions and millions and millions of searches, and most of them from uh, non-members write Mormon. So the church are not dumb. They know what they need to do. And it seems that uh, the Mormon nickname was benign enough until 1980 when critics began to increasingly say that the church was not Christian. So in response to that, and to help counter the claim, of course the LDS officials didn't change any doctrines, uh, they unveiled a new church logo in December of 1995 where the words Jesus Christ were enlarged. It used to be the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And in 1995, they made it the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so that means they're Christian, you know. They did that just to see. And I guess uh, as Salt Lake was gearing up for the 2002 Winter Olympics, the LDS First Presidency at that point said, make sure you call yourself Latter-day Saints and stop using uh, the word Mormon. You know, we don't want to hear you do that anymore. It was an official pronouncement, but it didn't work. 
Uh, late LDS President Gordon B. Hinckley said, quote, regardless of our efforts, we may never convert the world to use the full and correct name of the church. We may not be able to change the nickname, but we can make it shine with added luster. That seems to be their intent and their approach they're going to use from now on out. Added luster like an angel of light. So um, that is what's going on with the name of the LDS church. A few weeks ago, I made statements about tithing on one of the shows somebody called in, and it really irritated a couple of folks far and wide, uh, and they said, you know, they, what they did was they emailed me and they gave me a whole bunch of reasoning as to why tithing, that word tithing, is still applicable in the church today. Now, with all their reasoning, and some of them voluminous, just, just pages and pages, none of it was scriptural. I mean, all it was was just their take on what tithing is today in the church and their insistence on using the term. The only verses that they could use with the word tithing in it were verses from the Old Testament, like in Malachi. Uh, and so uh, in the end, um, I even had someone write and say that tithing is a minimum requirement of Christians. 10% is a minimum uh, to which I re re replied, that's just insane. That's just another rule of man. And so, uh, listen, you give cheerfully and generously as God directs you and forget all the non-biblical manipulations that go on with that word. Last week, we talked uh, about the LDS church and Christian views of the church. We had a clip that we couldn't show because it wasn't ready uh, from a BYU I think professor or president in BYU Hawaii speaking and talking about the church. So we're going to run that for you right now. When Elder LeGrand Richards, an apostle of an earlier generation, went to Europe on his first mission, a fellow missionary said to him, I met a man the other day who knows more about religion than I ever dreamed of. I told him that if he had something better to offer than what I had, I would join his church. This missionary expressed concern to Elder Richards that maybe he had said the wrong thing and made the wrong offer. Elder Richards responded, Elder, you told him just the right thing. If he has something better than you have, you should join his church. Does he have something better than a personal visitation of God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ and a pillar of light after centuries of spiritual darkness to open the dispensation of the fullness of times? Does he have something better than the coming of Moroni with the plates from which the Book of Mormon was translated? Does he have something better than the coming of John the Baptist with the Aaronic priesthood? The power and authority to baptize by immersion for the remission of sins? Does he have something better than the coming of Peter, James, and John, apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ with the holy Melchizedek priesthood? Does he have something better than the coming of Moses with the keys of the Latter-day Gathering of Israel? Does he have something better than the coming of Elijah to turn the heart of the children to the fathers in fulfillment of a prophecy in the book of Malachi? Does he have something better than holy temples and temple ordinances for the living and the dead? Does he have something better than the opportunity you have to take your sweetheart to a temple and be sealed to her for time and all eternity? Does he have something better than patriarchal blessings? Something better than living apostles and prophets? Something better than the great society of Zion? If he has something better than that, you should join his church. Brothers and sisters, this is truly a great 
and amazing church. I have something better. Freedom in Christ. Freedom from religion. That's what I have. And I mean, that is just an amazing pictorial. It's really funny, too, when you look at it. If you look at it, the, the history of Mormonism, Joseph Smith was not a very clean guy, like physically. His hygiene, even Bushman writes about him uh, in, in looking dirty in some of his books, how, you know, they, they lived a very frontierish life. And yet all those pictures, you know, it's like they're all just clean, like he shaved with a Gillette, you know, and, and his hair was coiffed with, with uh, whatever. And, and Peter, James, and John, and everybody just looks so beautiful in this stuff. It is such a PR machine. You know, to just, just see the PR, PR, all about the church. With that, let's petition the living God to help us tonight. Lord, we need you uh, greatly. I need you, uh, and we pray you'll be with us, be with our staff, be with the volunteers, our studio audience, people watching from wherever, and help the message, uh, this important message tonight that we're going to talk about, uh, ring through clearly. The things that I say that are wrong, that they'll die on the floor, but the things that are right will live on and cause these seeds of faith to grow. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, with the year of 2010 for Heart of the Matter, we're looking at alphabetized topics, reviewing what the LDS say about them, and then comparing them to what the Bible actually says. Tonight, being in the seas, we've come to one of the most obvious external differences that exist between Bible-believing Christian churches and people and the LDS church and their members. The presence and or absence of the cross. Interestingly enough, when most Latter-day Saints are asked if they are Christian, they ardently maintain, yes, we are. Yet on almost every doctrinal point, Mormon doctrine differs in some way or another with biblical Christian doctrine or practice. The views on the cross are no different. Now, while I believe there is a great uh, difference often between official Mormon doctrine and the heartfelt beliefs that many Latter-day Saints privately maintain when it comes to how the LDS general populace view the cross, I think I am saying that most faithful members of the Mormon church miss the meaning of it completely. In some ways, in fact, I think the basic differences between the way the Mormons and the Christians see the cross perfectly illustrate how vastly different Mormonism is from biblical Christianity. We live in a world of symbols. Some are internationally recognized, other are locally significant. Symbols evoke deep felt emotions within human beings. They encapsulate epochs of time and moments of history and they can articulate in a single icon, what volumes, what an entire library cannot do in books. Icons and symbols serve to remind people of their allegiance to a cause or a group and can be pregnant with deep and multifaceted meaning. Think of the Star of David and what that symbol means. Think of the peace sign and what it means to people. Even think of the golden arches and what that sign would mean to somebody who's been a prisoner of war for 15 years in the jungle and comes back and sees the golden arches. I'm always taken back when I watch the Olympic Games and I see somebody standing on the, the award box 
and they're shedding tears when, the, when their personal country's flag is raised. Now, God knows God created human beings with the ability to relate strongly to icons and symbols. He made us this way on purpose. And before the foundation of the world, the import of the cross was known to this omnipotent God. To Christians, the cross is symbolically central to the single most important thing in their existence. Yet there exists a few common misunderstandings that occur when it comes to this universal symbol. I think it's important to know that the cross first, the cross first is not a man-made icon. Okay? It's not like the swastika or the black and white yin and yang symbol. Uh, something, it is something that came in scripture and was uh, used in scripture prior to it becoming a symbol. The other ones were symbols that were used, but the, this was something that came about as a result of what happened in scripture. We remember that when Jesus was crucified, the Jews, not wanting him to hang there overnight because of the onset of Passover, they asked the Roman soldiers to go and break his legs so that he would die before sunset. And when they got to him, they, the, the soldiers found he was already dead. So fulfilling prophecy that there was to be no bone in his body broken. Well, there's another picture that was fulfilled in Christ on this occasion. Looking all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, Moses pictured this very circumstance where Jesus was being crucified on a wooden cross. When he wrote in Deuteronomy 21:23, quote, His body shall not remain all night upon the tree. Trees are made of wood. Crosses are made of wood. But thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God. Generally speaking, in Scripture, the cross represents two very different but interconnected things. First, it is most often seen as an instrument of torture. This is the cross's material meaning. Often, this understanding of the cross is where it begins and ends within many people, but especially with the Mormons. They only see it as a barbaric fixture upon which Jesus suffered the, br the brutality of his physical death. In a very simplistic way, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, could be seen as a cinematic representation of the cross as an instrument of physical death. While on my full-time mission in Pennsylvania, Harrisburg, people would ask us, uh, how come you guys, meaning the Mormons, how come you guys don't have crosses on your churches or even on your name tags? And I was taught in the LDS MTC to say something to the effect of, well, suppose that you had someone you loved a lot. Maybe it was your brother or your father, and someone murdered them with a buck knife. How would you like it if people then took replicas of a bloody buck knife and put it up on their walls or wore it around their necks as a memorial? This is an example of seeing or representing the cross in a very limited way, only as an instrument of death. As an unregenerated unbeliever, and therefore when I was incapable of seeing spiritual things, I thought this response I would give on my mission was just great. And I thought that it was so clever and witty to say to Christians who revered this icon of barbarism. 
It made sense to me logically because I had an intellectual understanding of his death and sacrifice, but no personal biblical understanding of what, it, what that time on the cross really meant for me personally and spiritually. When I was born again and remained, by the way, uh, LDS for another four years, I almost immediately, I'm not kidding you, when I was born again, I almost immediately began to appreciate this icon of the cross. I wasn't taught. I didn't have to sit down and try to figure it out. It just sort of came and I sort of learned to love and resonate to it over and over uh, and more and more as time went by. What changed? How did I go from viewing the cross only as an instrument of death which was humanistically repulsive and intellectually insipid to me as a Mormon, and then to view it as an object of honor and adoration and of eternal appreciation. It happened when I went from seeing the cross only as an instrument of death and then understanding what I call the doctrine of the cross. Biblically, the cross of Christ is represented in three distinct ways, materially, metaphorically and metonymically. I'll explain that word in a minute. The material cross is what we've been talking about, is the object that he, Christ, physically died upon. It is believed that the Lord died upon what the Greeks call a tau. That's the capital T of the Greek language. It has no top above it. It's, it's just the capital T. And most scholars believe that Jesus died on the tau. And um, that's also known as St. Anthony's cross, just for your information. Um, the Latin cross or the lowercase t, like you'll see like around my neck, these, these types of crosses are depicted in religious art, but they are not thought to be really what he was hung on. The material cross is very important to the Church of Rome, but it doesn't have that big of a place in many Protestant believers around the world. A great deal of Christians do not even wear crosses. To the Catholics, the material cross is often accompanied by a figure of Jesus stuck to it. This is known as not a cross, but a crucifix. A crucifix is the cross with a figure, Jesus, stuck on it. Without Jesus stuck on it, it's just a cross. So while Christians do embrace, honor, and revere his physical suffering and know that we cannot comprehend it, the material cross is only part of what this icon, what, these, what this symbol means. The metaphorical cross of Christ also plays an important role in biblical Christianity. It represents uh, Christian affliction. And according to scripture, it's metaphorically assigned to everybody who believes. Now, listen to this scripture. So important is the metaphorical cross to the Christian walk that Luke, inspired by the Holy Ghost, wrote that every man should take up his cross, okay? And so important is the metaphorical cross that Paul wrote in Romans 6, 6, that, quote, our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, and henceforth we should not serve sin, end quote. It's hard to let the old man be crucified on an icon that is unimportant. We see from this passage and others like it that the cross is far more than just an instrument of death, which the Romans used to kill the physical body, but that it has metaphorical application of those who choose to follow Jesus. 
With this metaphorical significance, the Holy Spirit utilizes this God-given icon to remind every Christian that we too ought to be crucified with our King and to take up our cross and walk. The LDS are so myopically focused on it being an instrument of death that they errantly and arrogantly and even ignorantly um, demean things about it. Consider what noted LDS science fiction writer and thinker Orson Scott Card said about the cross, which was published in the Mormon, Ma Mormon Run magazine, Meridian. He said, quote, I don't believe that the manner of Jesus' death had anything to do with either the atonement or the resurrection. That's why we Mormons don't use the symbol of the cross on our churches. To us, crucifixion was merely the method that the Romans used to execute those of whom they wanted to make a public example. Had the death been by lethal injection, the effect on our salvation would have been the same. I believe that Christ's real suffering was the anguish he felt as he bore the horror of complete spiritual separation from God, taking upon himself an infinite degree of the torment that is the natural spiritual consequence of sin, the remorse and despair we feel or will fear, feel to varying degrees because of our disobedience to or the rejection of God, he felt so utterly we can't imagine it. In this context, what was done to his body was almost a distraction. Many people have borne as much. Orson Scott Card, hope he's not crucified like Jesus was. We can't blame Card for his ignorance, though. He only mimics the twisted thinking he has been taught by his LDS leaders over the years. One of these twists is the notion that it was in the Garden of Gethsemane where the true atonement of Jesus Christ took place, not on the cross. BYU professor Robert J. Matthews wrote in his book, A Bible, A Bible, quote, it was in Gethsemane on the slopes of the Mount of Olives that Jesus made his perfect atonement by the shedding blood more so than on the cross. Nowhere in the Bible is the Garden of Gethsemane noted as a place of shame or atonement or a place where the suffering for sin took place. And the fact that Jesus sweat, quote, as it were great drops of blood in the garden while contemplating what he was about to do is only recorded in Luke. Uh, when we get to the G's of our alphabetical, we're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and I will show to you why that is illogical that he suffered for sin in the garden. What the LDS say about the Garden of Gethsemane, however, is simply another form of Mormon twistianity. Accept enough of these twists and before you know it, you are on the opposite side of the good news. LDS prophet Gordon B. Hinckley added to this LDS distancing of itself from the cross when he said in April of 2005 in the LDS magazine, The Ensign, quote, For the LDS, the cross is the symbol of the dying Christ, while our message is a declaration of the living Christ. All of these LDS twists take a single take the single most important view of the cross, meaning what it fully represents to humankind spiritually and reduces it to the common meaningless form of Roman capital punishment. So we've talked about the material meaning of the cross. We talk about the metaphorical meaning of the cross, but let's talk about the third way the Bible represents the importance of the cross and the word is metonymically. This way is completely lost on the LDS. 
and it is perhaps the most important aspect of the cross. Metony, metony, is a figure of speech in which one word or phrase um, is substituted for another, uh, and that word is very close to what is embodied in what it's representing. For instance, when people say Washington, Washington is doing this, it's metonymically using Washington, D.C. to represent the whole of the United States federal government. That's metony, okay? Or when we say the power of the sword, we are using sword metonymically for military might or for might uh, makes right, something like that, but the sword is metonymically used. The metonymical view of the cross is perhaps the most important uh, part of the cross of Christ as it becomes the icon for the gospel, the doctrine of the gospel, and what Jesus did upon the cross to bring the good news to all of us. In this case, the cross is metonymical for everything the good news represents. The cross is the work of Christ. It is his shed blood. It's our hope in him. It's the miracle of the resurrection. It's our justification. It's our sanctification. It's his entire work concentrated into a single iconographic article to which we all see and relate. It is emblematical of our very eternal life. And the Bible tells us so. In my opinion, all references to the cross are important, but this metonymical association really touches on the present day significance the cross has to born again Christians. And as mentioned, it is this most important aspect that the LDS miss entirely. Under the guise of restoring the early church back to the earth, Joseph Smith took full theological license to twist a number of core biblical beliefs and to label these twists as parts of his imaginative restoration. Such twists have helped remove the metaphorical and metonymical applications of the cross from the Mormon mind, leaving it only to errantly be identified as a Roman instrument of death. And what have they replaced the cross with in this restored gospel? Graven images of mythical golden angels topping their, uh, uh, their uh, temples and phallic-like structures or spires that uh, point to the deification of man, to him becoming a god with eternal increase. Listen very carefully to the meta- metonymical sense of these biblical verses. Ready? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 17, 18, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us which are saved, it, meaning the cross, is the power of God. The power of the cross is metonymically used as the power of God, and the LDS refuse it. In Galatians 5.11, Paul refers to the offense of the cross. How can the cross be an offense to somebody? Ask the LDS. Here is a perfectly clear picture of what their gospel has created, a people who are offended by the cross. Is the cross an offense to you or is it a symbol of joy and peace and of God's great love and grace to you as his creation? 
how you view the cross is dependent on whether you have been spiritually born again or not and truly understand Jesus. Those who have not been born again by God will almost always view the cross in errant terms, even as a graphic offense. In Galatians 6, 12 through 14, Paul speaks, met speaks metonymically of believers suffering persecution for the cross of Christ, he says. Then he continues, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, don't let me glory. Don't let me glory about anything in the garden. Don't let me glory about Gethsemane and the, and the blood he, he, uh, he sweated there. Don't let me glory in anything about temples. Don't let me glory in ordinances or baptisms or my Christian walk. Don't let me glory any, in anything except only in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Mormons say no to the cross. And they call themselves Christian. Again, in Ephesians 2.16, the cross is used metonymically as the thing that unifies sinful man to holy God. It says that he might, Christ, reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the hatred thereby. By his bloody death on the cross, we are reconciled in one body through the expiation of sin. He slays the hatred between all peoples on the cross, and Jesus annulled the Jewish ceremonial laws. How about a few more, quickly? Speaking of Jesus, Philippians 2.8 says, quote, And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Why is this important? Because the death of the cross was a public and humiliating death. That humility that even our creator was willing to go face, we too are asked to be humble in the face of the trials that we uh, endure and the crosses we pick up. Hence the humility of that instrument the LDS say they really don't have a part of. It was before the world was as it were. It was planned and highly purposeful in the mind of God from the beginning of all things. Fashioned as a man, Jesus allowed himself to stand on the bottom rung of a ladder that ascended to God. He came all the way down and, 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 and he took on the most despised and embarrassing and humble death that you could on an accursed cross over on a hill overlooking the city of David before all lifted up on a cross that the LDS rejects. This is important stuff, my friends, because Jesus didn't suffer for the sickness and sin of the world in private or by lethal injection. God the Father had him out in the public eye, suffering for the sins of the world in the most humiliating of circumstances. Look at Hebrews 12, 2. It says, quote, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. Shame and brought to the lowest of low, hung on a tree publicly with common criminals, spit on, mistreated, shamed, ridiculed publicly. For what? And that, that LDS writer Orson Scott Card says that, the, the, the de the, that this treatment was just nonsensical. It had no real bearing on the true atonement that he probably wrote with, with some real reverence. It's unbelievable. What a ploy to get people, well-meaning people, to take their eyes off the very place where they were reconciled to God by this act. And to have them then look up at golden angels blowing trumpets and to walk in and believe that they are purifying themselves. 
The LDS claim that the blood was shed in the garden. Absolutely unbelievable. Read Colossians 1.20. Listen to this. Listen to Colossians 1.20. Quote, and having made peace through the blood of his cross. That's a direct contradiction to this blood suffering in the Garden of Eden that they try to say. By him who reconciled all things to himself. By the blood of his cross. Through the blood of the garden? No. The blood of his cross. Colossians 2.14, it says, not only was his blood shed on the cross, listen to what it says about ordinances. Ready? Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that were against us, which were contrary to us, and took it out of his way, nailing it to his cross. When Jesus was, was pinned to the cross and nailed on it, the ordinances, all the rules, all the writing, all the legislation, the temple stuff they were doing, the sacrificial animals, the baptismal rites, the mikvahs, all of it nailed to the cross. Are you getting the picture here? What happened on that cross altered, fulfilled, completed, atoned, connected, and made one of what God had intended from the beginning. I pray the Latter-day Saints everywhere will demand that the LDS leaders put up crosses on their chapels. I pray they will add a crossbar to those chapel spires out there in respect, in adoration, and worship of Christ. I pray they'll tear down those golden uh, idols and images from the top of their temples and rent the temple veil in the name of him who already did the job for them with his life on the cross. With that, let's open up the phone lines. 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. First time callers if possible, LDF, F LDS callers, if possible, please turn your TV sets down. Now, I want you to know that we appreciate all the support you guys give in prayer, uh, whatever you do financially, whatever you do with letters, sharing the show with other people. It all helps, and it's helping us to go national. We're about a quarter of our way to our goal to be able to do that. Looks like it could uh, happen. We're going to show you a spot, and when we come back, we'll take your phone calls then. watching Heart of the Matter, a live weekly television program right here from the Mecca of Mormonism. We've been on the air for almost four years now. Now, we're a tax-exempt corporation, and we survive solely on your financial support. There are two ways that you can uh, help support this ministry financially, through the mail or through the Internet. Now, some people give as they can. And everything is a great blessing to us. We are so grateful for the support people have given over the years. We also invite anyone inclined to join with us in this fruitful ministry by becoming a partner. And this simply means you're in a position to contribute a certain amount annually, which greatly helps us with our planning. Be our friend, become our partner, but we do need your support if you're so inclined of the Lord and you have already given to the church. For more information, call 888-868-HOTM or 
3-314-4686. Write to us at 314 South Redwood Road, Salt Lake City, 84104. Or get on the internet, www.hotm.tv for more information. God bless you all. Phone lines are full, but if just keep trying, 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. Uh, the operators clear through. We have uh, Valerie from West Valley, first-time caller, waiting on the line. In the meantime, we've had other people drop messages. The first one says, caller wants to know if uh, what happens to deathly ill Christian people who choose to commit suicide. You know, I have absolutely no idea. Uh, I'm very liberal in my views. If somebody knows uh, uh, Christ, believes in their heart, confesses with their mouth, has been born again, I do not ever even intend to believe I know what happens to them. I believe that people who commit suicide are desperate people. And uh, people do things sometimes they don't mean to do. I don't believe for a second that anyone has the right to say because someone kills themselves, they've gone to hell. Especially people who were or are committed Christians. I know Jews at Masada killed themselves, and it was an honorable act. They still hold that up. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think it's best to, to not kill yourself. But if you do, uh, you know, I love you the same. And uh, so what do you do? You know, love is what we do. We have faith is what we do. And if people choose to kill themselves and you can't get someone to speak at their funeral, give me a call. I'll do it. All right. Uh, caller wants to know if the documents shown at conference this past weekend were real. I didn't watch General Conference uh, because I was feeling really healthy and I didn't want to feel nauseous for the rest of the week. So uh, I didn't watch General Conference, but I will read back through and we will do some things. And I don't know what documents they are. I could probably tell you the documents probably were real but their interpretation of the documents were wholly false. So we'll see. I'm just making that statement. I don't know. We'll see. Jeff from Provo says that Mormons don't believe in the same Jesus. He couldn't believe conference was not focused on such an awesome day, Easter. And I guess what he's saying is that everybody there just didn't talk about Jesus, the resurrected Christ, who he was, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Again, I didn't see a uh, conference, so I don't know. Uh, we are going to go to First uh, Valine in West Valley, uh, XLDS. Valerie, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, this is Valerie. Can you hear me? I can. Okay, here's the thing. I, um, when I was a very little girl and I, were gonna I was thinking of getting baptized for the dead, they took and showed me the font, and it was in the temple, and it was held up by golden calves all the way around it. And I had just seen the movie The Ten Commandments, and that kind of bothered me. But now that I'm a Christian, what bothers me the most, and I'm really questioning this, is um, I have uh, I work in men's suits and men's clothing, so I outfit a lot of LDS missionaries where I work. Um, but when the African-American ones come in, I'm totally stunned every time. It shocks me. And then my heart breaks, and I've started to ask them if they wouldn't read the Journal of Discourses, starting with book one and two, because I don't know quite what else to tell them, and so just, that just really bothers me. What do you think? Oh, I think you're in a really good position to, uh, to share the gospel uh, with departing missionaries. I would be slipping uh, Sandra Tanner tracks into all their suit pockets. <laughs> I need to go get I mean, them, huh? I would, I would be ringing them up and saying, how many wives did Joseph have? Have you read the, uh, the history of racism? I would do everything you can, just as long as you, you, know, you don't get fired or something. But man, plant the yeah. seeds. It's a great opportunity. It really is. My heart just breaks for them because, I mean, are they duped? 
Don't any, doesn't anybody ever tell them? Yeah, they're duped. Absolutely. And you might say, I mean, that's going to be offensive to some people to say they're duped, but they are. I mean, duped means little, they don't I have the facts. I was afraid of black people because of that teaching. Pardon me? When I was little, I was afraid of black people. And then I yeah. started to be afraid of, of all of the other races, too. And, and then I discovered that it's the human race. There's only one race. No kidding. Exactly. Well put. Good call, Valerie. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. God bless. Bye-bye. We're going to Cand Candace in Woods Cross. Candace, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi. I just wanted to tell you I, I am so grateful for your show, and um, my husband and I really enjoy it. And I have to tell you that we were both born and raised in the LDS Church. Uh-huh. Uh, we left the church on our own free will when we were teenagers. And it's amazing uh, that even to this day, we still have thoughts in our head that might be Mormon thoughts, you know, yeah. things that we were taught by bishops and church leaders. Yeah. And we caught your show a few months ago, and we've been loyal viewers because we've learned a lot from watching your show, and we're learning the truth, and it's been very valuable. Praise and God. And so we're just really grateful for you and the message that you're spreading. I think it's really good. Thanks, Candice. Can I can Thank I suggest you. can I suggest something or do you have a question? Well, I just wanted to. There's one thing that I wanted to say. Okay. I, I do think that there's a big problem with brainwashing in that church. When the reason why I left that church is because um, in seminary, I had a seminary teacher that came in one day with a, a jar of moldy peaches yeah. and a jar of fresh peaches, and and see, my parents were not LDS. I went to church all by myself every Sunday. And the seminary teacher told us that the fresh peaches represented people who were married and filled in the temple. Oh. And the moldy peaches re represented people who were not LDS and even gays and lesbians. Oh. And they told us that they were, um, they were damned to go to hell. Wow. And it was that day that I realized that something just wasn't right, and it, and it actually almost felt evil to me. Huh. But I still had some of those Mormon thoughts in the back of my head, and from watching your show, I've realized it's amazing how much um, you take in when you're young, and, and you just believe it to be true. Yeah. And so we've learned a lot from your show. We've gained a lot, and we're actually thinking about going back to church. Good. I just felt really inspired by you, and I think you're doing a, a really good thing. Well, thanks, Candace. Praise God. So Listen, thank, you. Uh, thank you for sharing that, that object lesson that now is going to stay in my head forever. Uh, is it now but No, I'm just kidding you. Listen, um... Uh, on the, uh, the scripture says that the, it's the word of God, it's the living word that will renew your mind. And so while uh, you are really doing well, get into the word and read it. And what it does is it replaces those falsehoods that were inculcated to you as a child. And it will replace them with the living word. And I just say they're like scrubbing bubbles. They're like drinking scrubby bubbles and they go into your brain and they just remove this stuff over time. So get back to a good Bible teaching Christian church and keep going, my sister. Yes, can I ask you one quick question? Yeah. Is the King James uh, version of the Bible, is that an LDS Bible? No. They, they do use the King James, but they alter it in their footnotes. But the okay. King James is used by many, many Christian denominations. Yeah, we've been wondering if we were to go to Bible study, which Bible would you recommend? Yeah, I, I mean, I like the King James if you're used to that. If you're not uh, good with that language, you can go to something like the New King James. You can go to the NIV. You can go to the ES. Okay, yeah, I have the NIV Bible. I'm not so telling you where they're from. Uh, the ESV is a good one. Any of those, but 
Find one that you like, and and it will work for you. Awesome. Okay, thank you so much. Keep okay, God bless you. Bye-bye. You know, these object lessons that they do in these classes, I mean, they can be terrifying. I remember um, I, I, there was an object lesson given by this sister, and she held up a picture of... Um, of uh, like uh, the things of the world, drugs and, and bikini clad girls and stuff. And she started saying, we don't wanna do these things. And she started stabbing it with a knife, stabbing it in front of all of us. We're like, ah! And then she turned it around and there was a picture of Jesus on the back. I was like, oh my goodness. I've, I've, I've murdered him, and I did. I have murdered him with my sin, but I mean, can they give it to you a little bit nicer? But she's stabbing it like a maniac, like it was psycho or something. Uh, okay, um, let's see. Let's go to, um, we're going to go to Joe in Cedar City, and we're going to go to Chris in Spanish Fork. But first, I want to say we got an email from Michael. He said, I had a couple of questions about the infallibility of the Bible. Uh, why is the Bible infallible? And why does it have to be infallible? And I wrote back, and I, and I just want to share this quickly with you. There's a belief that the Bible's inerrant. And that means that it is totally free from error. And I, I, I don't agree with that. I think there are errors. They aren't substantial. They don't discount the ability for the Bible to do what God wants it to do. They're, they're, I mean, 99.9% .9 of the Bible, I believe, is inerrant. But there are some things. I mean, look up Acts 12.4. You'll read a word called Easter in there. We just talked about this on Sunday. I don't like that word at all. And when you read the history about why Easter is put in there, you'll say, yeah, probably not a good word in the King James. There are some things, just a few things. But it's not a reason to build a whole a litany of arguments against the Bible. Now, infallible? Absolutely. That means it is unfailing in its ability to be effective. Okay, and it means it's trustworthy. So I prefer the word infallible in being able to lead anybody to a knowledge of Christ and what God wants you to be as a Christian. The LDS take these few little, you know, bad comma, bad word choice here or there and say you can't trust it. Just not true. But uh, the word in, inerrant, infallible. And then why does the Bible need to be infallible? Well, you know, do you want a manual that is going to be uh, not, that won't be trustworthy? Do you want to rely on God's word, call it God's word, and not be able to trust it and not be able to allow it to effectively lead you as a Christian? I mean, imagine a, a brain surgeon who has a, a fallible manual on how to perform brain surgery. I mean, we'll trust in manuals on how to fix a Volkswagen, but we say the Bible, which is fixing the most important thing we have, is errant and fallible? No. It's absolutely, and God wouldn't give us his word and have people record it if it was going to be. All right, uh, let's, go to, um, let's go to Chris in Spanish Fork, and then we're going to go to Joe and Steve. Chris, you're on Heart of the Matter. Got to turn your TV down, Chris. Steve? Joe? Hello? Turn your TV down. He'll get it in just about three seconds. I was waiting for him to answer. <laughs> it's all right. Hey, you're on the air, Chris. Hi. Hi, Chris. Uh, I say hi, you're doing, but you're probably doing okay, brother. One, one comment I have to say about the beasts holding the baptismal font up. From what I understand, that is definitely a no-no. Any beast or reputation of beast in the church or the temple of God is a no-no. I'm sorry, Chris. 
say it one more time, a little bit clearer. I, I thought you said beasts. Okay. The, I have a comment about the lady that said that there was cows holding up the oh. baptismal font. Okay, yeah. From what I understand, that is definite no-no. Beast or reputations of beast in God's church is not right. Yeah, you know, uh, Robert, you here? I don't think yeah. so. L listen, uh, there is a reference of the brazen uh, basin, the wash basin in the old temple being held up on the back of graven oxen. So I think they actually take it from uh, Leviticus and the instructions the children of Israel received on how to support the, uh, the wash basin. But it doesn't mean, I mean, they're, they're baptizing kids in there for dead people. It's a completely different thing. But nevertheless, I think it's okay in terms of uh, those beasts being uh, carved out and used to support the basin. And the other comment I wanted to make is about the cross. Yeah, I, I don't think you can have eternal salvation or anything without it. Amen. I agree with you there, Chris. Great call. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, Bye. We have a rule. It's the heart of the matter rule. No smoking pot before you call. All right. We're going to we're going to anonymous. In Provo, Anonymous, you're on the air. Ah, hopefully Anonymous didn't listen to my advice on suicide tonight, are we? Uh, let's go to Steve in Pleasant Grove. No, uh, no, I'm going to get it after. Uh, Steve in Pleasant Grove, you're on the air. Uh, hi, uh, yeah. It I, is, um, I was uh, LDS until I was about 19 years old. Okay. And from that point, I've actually become a little bit of an atheist, thinking that, I mean, I kind of just got betrayed in my ways, I mean, by my bishop. I yeah. didn't really get along with my bishop very well. Uh -huh. And um, and I kind of, I, I became an atheist in this way just because I started studying religion. And um, anyway, I uh, my question is... Um, how, why do you bash other religions, LDS religions, when really, I mean, when you think about, um, you know, what religion is in the Bible, it's a lot of it is questionable, you know, it's not factual at all. So bashing other religions isn't really, you know, okay. it doesn't work at all when you actually, you know. Yeah. Steve, couple things. Uh, just some points to, to consider as to answering why. Uh, first and foremost, when you say there's a lot of things in the Bible that are not, uh, I don't remember the word you use, valid at all, um, I want you to name some for me after I'm done. Uh, the second thing is in terms of validity or support, if we're making a comparison between biblical Christianity and their belief in the Bible and its country and its, and its historicity and its linguistics and its genetic and its cultural uh, history. If you're making a comparison between Christianity and Mormonism and putting them on the same playing field in terms of evidence, you are a very bad scientist because Mormonism has zero to support both Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, or the Book of Mormon, whereas the Bible has places and history and all those other things we talk about. 
third well, wave. Okay, history like is in, do you believe Moses parted the Red Sea? Do you really believe that? I mean, that's kind of ridiculous okay. when you think well, about it that, factually. That's, but that's, that's not what I'm talking about here. That is an element of faith. So if you're talking about faith, I will agree with you. If you're just talking well, see, about but the, the idea of Mo, you know Moses parting the Red Sea and Joseph Smith coming up with this beautiful plan for the Mormons, that's well, just the, the only for problem. Them. But Steve, the problem is there is a Red Sea, and there and there were writings by a guy named Moses. There yeah, is no Arianton. There is no uh, Zarahemla. You know, and this is the difference between the two. Now, one final point: my bashing on Mormonism is not bashing on it because it has divergent views from mine. You notice I don't say, I say very little about Islam, uh, Hindus, Buddhists, very little. I say very little about any of that. Why? Here's the thing. This is the reason we do the show, Steve. Mormons tell the world they're Christians. That would be like me saying to the world, I am an atheist. Praise God. I do not believe in God. I love the Bible. It's, you would call me and say, you're not an atheist, McCraney. You are a believer. They say they're Christian. I will prove yeah. they're not. Anything else, I don't care if they exist. If they want to say that they believe in a different God, in a different book, in a different, leave them alone and admit they're not Christian. I'll, go, well, I'll see, stop the show. Being surrounded by Mormons the whole time, they know they're Christian. They know they're Christian because they believe in Christ. Okay, what Christ? They believe in the Christ, the exact Christ you believe in. They no, they the don't. Same doctrine. Oh, absolutely. That you do. They believe in an absolutely different Christ than I believe in. And even you, who is so studied, you can't see the differences. I mean, how much have you studied Christianity, Steve, in your decision? I, I was, in I your was decision a Mormon. I that mean, there is no God. Studied, what? I was a Mormon until I was nineteen. I mean, that's what I can say. You, I've studied you studied Mormonism, but how much yeah. have you studied about Christianity? Um. I, I passages Nothing. in the Bible. I mean, I, I've read. You've read passages in the Bible, Steve. I want to tell you something, and this is going to be hard to hear, and I do it in love. You're deluding yourself. First of all, you're making a pronouncement that there is no God, acting as though you have all understanding of everything in the world. You know, you have to believe you really know everything to make that pronouncement that there is no God. Well, I don't. I don't believe in any of this at all. Actually, I, I, I know that. At all. Listen. I just want give my him a chance, was, why Steve. Why are you concentrating on bashing other religions and not inspiring others in well, your religion? You know, what does an of, atheist worry of, about my inspiring believe, others? You, 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 you decide to go on and and bash another religion instead of inspiring another person to believe in what you, you believe. You know, because it, it really is just another fiction that you're trying to instate in somebody because you have but no But you're proof. not inspiring me right now. You have right no now. proof at all that Jesus existed Steve? at all. Steve, you, know you realize... Jesus, you Steve? have no proof that Jesus existed. Steve? You have no proof that he died on a Steve? cross. You have no proof at all. So I'm, I'm just saying don't bash other people. I'm just saying, Stevie? you know, inspire other peoples in your fictional beliefs. Steven? I'm, that's, well, that's what I'm trying to say. You know, don't bash other people because it is hurtful for rule. some people. For, you know, you know uh, but it is a fictional thing. You shouldn't actually bash somebody for all right. coming up with another fictional story. Steven, you realize that you just, you, you realize you just accused me of not uplifting anybody, and you spent that whole time not uplifting me. I've spent this whole time not uplifting you, but I don't have a TV series. So it's the fact that I'm on TV that I, needs to, I have to have a different agenda than you do? Yeah. 
Steve, you're I'm you're saying, look you know, at look at. Let me tell you something. And a, and a TV we do what we do, Steve. Steve, I do what I. Steve, I do what I do. You can do one th really important thing if you want. Turn the channel. All right. All right. We're going on. All right. Let's go to uh, anonymous again. Four anonymous. You're on heart of the matter. We only got two minutes. Yes, I was wanting to know. Um, um, how, like in the Bible, I'm a Christian, and I'm really trying to hold on to it. And I was wanting to know, like in the scriptures when it says things like, honor your father and your mother that your days will be long, and it talks about length of days and long life if you're doing the right things and stuff. And then you see people that are doing all those things, and they don't. They die young. And I was just wanting to know why, how you explain that and how you know that the Bible is the true word of God. Okay, really quickly, because we're almost out of time, uh, Anonymous, but first of all, the honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the earth, uh, that was because the penalty for not honoring your father and mother was death. All right? And so okay. uh, in the Old Covenant, the, the Israelites were under a uh, obey, blessing, disobey, cursing uh, uh, system. Today, okay. under, yeah, under the new system, there is no, all, all bets are off. God is doing what he is doing, and you might honor your father and mother and die of leukemia when you're very young. So it just doesn't work that way. And secondly, trusting the Bible, the best thing I can say to you is to read it. That, it's the best advice I can give. Now, you can read Norman Geisler, and you can read uh, historians' research of the Bible, and this isn't a new deal. There's a lot of very articulate, smart men and women who have studied this thing, and you can read their books about it, but I think the best thing to do if you want to know if the Bible can be trusted is to read it and not commentaries about how it's off. I know that's very quick and short, Anonymous, but we love you. Keep watching. We're out of time. Listen, we're going to continue on with C's, and I don't know where we are next week on those, but join us here on Heart of the Matter where Mormonism and Christianity meets face-to-face. -face. And next week, we'll try to do some analysis of last week's General Conference. See you then. Mm -hmm.